Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello, good morning. It is the AM hours of December 31st, 2017, New Year's Eve. I love New Year's. I love it. I am already getting ready for tonight, but on to the reason you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to the second annual installment of Best Stories 2017. Last year's episode was one of my favorites, so I decided to reprise it at the end of the year. So this is one of two Best Stories episodes. Yes, episodes, plural. I had an astounding amount of interest in contributing to this year's episode, so thank you everyone who participated. I recorded conversations with 14 amazing healthcare workers and split the show into two themed episodes for easy listening. And because we're all busy and don't have time for a 90-minute podcast. So this episode you are currently listening to is called Best Stories 2017, All the Fields. In this version, we get to hear seven healthcare professionals share stories from the bedside and beyond. Some are sad, some are funny, some are gratifying. So get ready to experience a range of emotions because healthcare, as many of you know, can make you laugh, cry, hug someone, and hit the wall all in the same day. I'm so thankful these guys were brave enough to share these moments, and I hope their stories are as inspiring to you as they are to me. So without further delay, here is Best Stories 2017 All the Feels. Enjoy. All right. Hey, my name's Dustin. I'm a, a registered nurse. I work in, in an inpatient psychiatric unit um, in a hospital setting in Minnesota. I was just going to share a story today about my, well, my best story of 2017. There was a patient who was a nine-year-old boy who had a reactive detachment disorder and uh, some, along with some other things and a very complicated psychosocial history, um, lots of foster care, lots of abuse, just a really, really sad situation. But, um, but we were trying to help him out. And, you know, some of those cases can, you know, we, we do the best we can on my unit to, you know, kind of uh, give him some solidity and um, try to get him on the back on the back on the right path. He had some behavior discontrol. And so we were working with him and Actually, it was a couple other nurses working with him, and I had a different patient across the unit. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard some um, chaos going on. There was stuff breaking and and cursing and yelling and lot, lots going on. So whenever any incident like that happens on a psychiatric unit, we all um, have to go and see what's going on. I, I had heard it. I was over in another area, and then they called security. And um, so by the time I got away from my patient over to where the, the nine-year-old was, was acting out. It had really, it had really escalated. He was threatening to kill himself, to kill others. And I know it sounds like a nine-year-old, what's he going to do? But sometimes they're pretty tough and, and especially given the trauma that he'd been through and stuff. So he was throwing things, breaking things, threatening to hurt himself. He'd picked up some plastic and stuff he was going to hurt himself with. And unfortunately, when that happens, we have a kind of like a de-stem room or seclusion area where we have to move the patients so they can be safe. Security comes and the nurses, we're all trained to properly, of course, escort them back, but you never want to have hands-on, but we were going to maybe have to get to the point where it was hands-on. So then I, I walked down and um, when I walked in the room, everybody was getting ready to kind of you know, put their hands on him. And then I noticed that he had a Anakin Skywalker colored picture on his wall. So I, um, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I love Star Wars. So, so I pretended, 
I had a lightsaber and said, young Padawan, we must go, you know, choose, don't choose the dark side, follow me, you know, and instantly. And then I, then I started walking towards the back, you know, I'm like, follow me, young Padawan, follow me, you know, and he just stopped right in the middle of cussing and throwing, put the thing down and just like, follow me, like right back to the back, you know, and went in there and de-stemmed. And then, you know, I did a little more interaction with him and, you know, kind of playful playfulness about Star Wars stuff. And I don't know, that was like, that story just like really touched me because I think so many times in nursing, we have all the interventions and everything that we learn from the school books and from our guidelines and protocols and all the nurses were doing that with him, you know, the appropriate things, but just that scene where he was at and what, what, what he connected with instantly, you know, got us the results we wanted. And it was, it was just, you know, it was a a good story. And that kind of built something that we could go to help his care from like further on, you know, it was correctable almost, all the time when you use Star Wars. So I just thought that that was like by far the like coolest story of the year. The force is strong with you, <laughs> Dustin. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is the coolest. That is the coolest story. That is, I'm just like, it was, my smile is hurting my face it, right now. I, I get tears in my eyes. They're talking about them. Uh, my name is Ashley Blackman, and I'm a nurse practitioner. I currently practice in a major metropolitan hospital um, in the state of Georgia. And uh, what I do is I see advanced heart failure patients specifically. I work for a large cardiology group, but I work weekends with the advanced heart failure team. Um, so that means these patients have, they're either being worked up or have already gotten a left ventricular assist device or a heart transplant or everything we're doing is palliative medical management, um, depending on a patient's surgical candidacy. So I see most of my patients are in the hospital, but we do follow up in the office. And so I get to see a lot of my patients over and over and over again and uh, develop relationships with them. And I think that that's one thing I enjoy the most about my job is that aspect of partnering with the patient in their care. My favorite or best patient story of 2017 has to do with a patient that had for a long time and I became close to him and his wife and his family. He had been feeling well, doing well, had been able to to spend a lot of time with his granddaughters um, and he got his uh, LBAD or left ventricular assist device uh, two years ago and his um, post-op course was pretty complicated with renal failure and some of the typical things that we can see with some of our more frail patients. But he fully recovered and he was not on dialysis and he had been doing well and um, spending a lot of time with his family and his wife had even made this big deal about how this year was his two-year anniversary and how they were so happy um, that he had had that time because honestly, if he had not gotten the LVAD, he would not have lived this long. He probably would have only lived a few more months, but it's nice that we were able to, to give him more, more time than that and it'd be quality time. So I did see him finally in the hospital this fall and I just was like, oh no, why, why are you here? And they said, well, we think he might've had a trans ischemic attack because he had stroke-like symptoms, but then they resolved. And so we're just kind of waiting to find out what's going on. And in the the midst of all that workup, he 
did not have a stroke. He did have a TIA, but there were masses found on his lungs. So it was really kind of sad news all around that he ended up with a diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, he'd had a very different, uh, distant history of colon cancer, and biopsies showed that it had returned and had metastasized to his lungs and various other places. And so, you know, we had the palliative care team and a bunch of other people, our case managers that always work with all of our LVADs um, and transplants work very closely with them and their family to make a decision for what he wanted to do. And ultimately, he decided that he had been through it all. You know, <laughs> the previous colon cancer, he had already done, you know, that surgery and that, you know, chemo round, and then he had recovered enough to have the LVAD. And, you know, it was just one thing after another. And he, he said, well, this is it. You know, I've had a really good two years. So they, they set um, everything up for home hospice, and he actually passed a couple of weeks ago at home. And it, it was really emotionally difficult for me because I, you know, had known them for so long, and I was talking with my husband about it, and I, I just said, I just, it's so frustrating to me that the majority of my patients die from their heart failure, and here he died at home from lung cancer, and my husband <laughs> helped me remember, he said, yeah, but that's a success. Like, that's a success story. Like, you were able to keep him from dying from heart failure. And I think that it was very powerful to me for him to remind me of that, but then also to realize, you know, we see so much. We deal with so many heavy things, you know, tragedies and sick people. And, you know, as nurses, we're always, you know, fighting that battle with our patients and our patients' family. And we're the support system for them and for the medical staff to realize that, you know, this man was able to have all of his options open to him and decide that he wanted to die at home was awesome, uh, that he, you know, had that freedom and that choice and that he was able to be comfortable and surrounded by his family because I feel that so many people, they think that that's what they want, but then they don't have it. And it's maybe because death came faster than they expected it to, or they felt like they needed to keep going, you know, do all the options, do all the surgeries, do all the treatments, you know, and then you get to that point where as a nurse, you're looking at this patient and you're thinking, man, you could have said, you could have said no and stopped this and been a lot more comfortable than you are right now. And when I look back at at all the stories from 2017, there are successes. There are times I could have said, oh, this person got a heart transplant and now they have like so many more years to live. But that story just didn't seem as special to me as this story because I did not have any other patient go home and die of lung cancer besides him. And so that's just what, uh, why I wanted to share that story. So my name is Jesse Robertson, and um, I'm a former resident, and I just started as a hospitalist a few months ago at a suburban level two trauma medical center in Colorado in my home state. I would say my best experience in medicine in 2017 really had nothing to do with medicine in the sense that it, it didn't involve, you know, a, like a medical treatment or, you know, a brilliant diagnosis, but it involved um, a woman and she had had a previous history of estrogen uh, receptor positive breast cancer that had been um, resected. And she had, she was like the ideal patient. Like she had done everything that she was supposed to do in terms of follow-up. She had all the adjuvant, you know, treatment for a number of years. She literally had like regular surveillance monitoring by her 
oncologist was just, you know, kind of this ideal, you know, very involved in her healthcare, healthy living, active woman. And she was admitted to my service on the, you know, regular floor wards team because of basically intractable, really severe um, back pain with radiculopathy. And we got imaging and, and basically, in a nutshell, what had happened is her cancer had come back and which estrogen receptor positive breast cancer can tend to do that after like a decade of of being kind of indolent. And it was everywhere in her bones and it actually eaten away at one of her um, thoracic vertebrae to the point that her back was like unstable and she could have become paralyzed like at any moment. So I had to contact, you know, neurosurgery and we had to immobilize her with a back brace and, um, you know, there really wasn't from a, from a internal medicine resident standpoint much that I was doing other than just, you know, kind of like seeing how she's doing and getting her kind of prepped for surgery and talking to her family who were all, of course, like the nicest people ever. I had this encounter and just this really great connection with them. Um, they're Italian, I'm Italian. And so, you know, we were talking about like where in Italy we're from and, foods and everything. And she just really had no appetite. Like she was just, you know, really depressed about the situation and terrified because she had to have this, what ended up being a really involved anterior, posterior spine cage fusion. I remember before she was going in for surgery and she really had no appetite that I was like, well, I bet you I could bring you something that would make you, you know, happy. Um, because there's this little restaurant that my husband and I had stumbled across and gone to a bazillion times um, because it's this little Italian joint and the people there are really friendly and it's just kind of small and intimate. And they have this dessert that is like the most amazing thing I think I've ever eaten in my entire life. Um, it's it's to call it like a pudding or a mousse is not really doing it justice. It's like this espresso, dense, chocolate, like amazingness. You know, just feeling like, well, if I can't do anything for you medically, at least I can do something from, for you on a human level and bring you dessert. <laughs> and so I brought this woman this pudding and I had told her, you know, I said, well, just be prepared. It's going to be delicious. You're going to love it. And I brought it in and with like the little plastic spoon from like the, you know, break room area on the floor. And she took one bite of it and her mom who had flown in from Italy was there and her daughter who was in nursing school at the time was there. And she just like her whole affect changed. She was like, oh my God, you guys have to try this. And they, you know, she got like teary eyed. She thought it was like, you know, so kind that I brought it. And I said, well, you know, I knew if you weren't wanting to eat, I bet you'd want to eat this. And so, you know, it just kind of changed their day. The The sister and the mom were so grateful and then when I inherited her back after she got out of the ICU, um, before she got discharged to uh, home because she was then going to start radiation therapy, I brought it to her again, you know, and, and wrote down the name of the place so that way she and her family could go back there and have it because they, they were just so touched by it. And, and so, you know, I think looking back on all of the medical experiences I've had, you know, and all of the moments where I've either made a diagnosis that's changed somebody's life, either for good or for bad or... Um, you know, my time spent in the ICU, you know, just kind of being with families in really tough times. What I really got out of this experience is that I didn't lose the human aspect of what really makes up most of medicine, even when you don't really have anything else to offer somebody that sometimes something as good as a really, really, really good piece of chocolate, or in this case, this like divine mousse from this little restaurant, 
you know, really changed somebody's, you know, whole day and affect and, and created a memory for them that, you know, I think they'll, they'll continue on. And I actually saw the daughter. Um, she uh, was still finishing up like clinical rotations in nursing school. And I asked her, you know, how, you know, I recognized her and I asked her how her mom is doing. And she said that she's doing really well and tolerating radiation therapy pretty well and that they've gone to that restaurant. So I thought it was just kind of really touching. You know, I I think what was really hard about medical school and residency is that you're just so focused on learning what you need to learn to be able to do your job. And you're so like drained emotionally from how many hours that you're spending at the hospital that you kind of forget. And it's really kind of in these very rare and kind of far between moments like I had with this patient and her family over pudding. Um, that reminded me that that's why I originally even went on this, you know, 16-year odyssey, you know, from the start of college, you know, until now um, to begin with. And I think what I, you know, have been able to start experiencing now that I'm attending, you know, you haven't lost the humanity. The humanity will come back to you and you will have more time and have more moments with, with patients that make you remember, like, why you did this to yourself. <laughs> I'm Christy Turner. I'm the founder of DementiaSherpa.com, and I'm a dementia care manager. And my best story of the year happened in February, actually. It was my first client from when I opened my business six years ago, and he had taken a turn and wasn't doing as well as he used to. I guess I should backtrack and say that um, when I first met him, he It was him and his wife. He didn't have any cognitive impairment. His wife had Alzheimer's disease. And I ended up serving as her guardian and loved her to pieces. And both of them, they were like fairy godparents. They were my very first clients. This guy, we'll call him Jay. He was declining. He had congestive heart failure and COPD. And his quality of life wasn't what it used to be. He was in in the hospital, and he decided that he wanted to go to rehab. And so I had a conversation with him about, are you sure you're you're really feeling like you want to go to rehab? And explained again, you know, what that meant and how much energy it takes to work with physical therapy and occupational therapy. And in his case, it was going to be speech therapy also. He said, yeah, he absolutely wanted to do that. And I thought that was weird because all the time that I had known him, he really liked sitting in his recliner and watching PBS, watching his shows on PBS or listening to his classical CDs. He kind of had a set routine. He liked reading his Louis L'Amour books. um, And he just was very structured about how things went in his day. And he had gotten a puppy shortly after his wife died. So he had this puppy that was about two years old and snuggled up with him in the chair. And that was really what he liked to do. And he knew that he wasn't getting any better. He knew what the outcome would be. And in the couple of years since his wife had died, he would tell me pretty frequently, you know, that he really looked forward to the day when he would be reunited with her. They'd been married for almost 60 years, and they were so bonded. 
and he missed her so much. And so this is why it was striking me as odd that he really wanted to move forward with going to rehab. So I asked Jay, what are you hoping for? And he said, I don't want to die. And I was so shocked. So we were able to have a conversation about that. And I'm so glad that I asked that question, but something tickled the side of my brain where I was able to go down that path because even though I felt like I knew him very well after all those years, it would have been easy for me to kind of fall into that default mode of, well, I I know him so well and we've had so many deep conversations over the years and so you know, I feel very confident about this choice or that choice or whatever and kind of lose sight of it was, you know, always about him, always is supposed to be about the client and what they want and honoring it as best I can as as the professional that's supporting them. And so in Jay's case, it turned out that he had a very specific reason that he was afraid of dying. He was had a specific fear and blessedly felt confident enough and comfortable enough with me to tell me kind of the outer edges of that. And so I was able to call his pastor that he had known for years and arrange for him to come see him and make that right. And so he did go ahead and transfer to rehab, was perked up and doing well. And his pastor came to see him and he lapsed into a coma and died five days later. And so I feel like that's by far the best story I'll have this year because I'm so grateful that I had the the opportunity to um, make that happen, you know, to to make that phone call and to help him die peacefully. And I'm so grateful for whatever intuition or whatever it was, the little cosmic tap on the shoulder. Hi, my name is Jay. I'm a nurse manager. Uh, my background, I do have, I worked in, in Canada and that's where I did my training and then came down to uh, the States and uh, have been working at um, a hospital. I wanted to introduce that because I know there are nurses out there that have immigrated to to the States and have, you know, found a home here. And that, that definitely is the case for me. Uh, 10 years in Canada and now about 10 years here in the States. One of the reasons why I wanted to say that is with the recent kind of political turmoil that came about, my our immigra- uh, immigration status was kind of on hiatus, and one one employer was not uh, was not sure which way the political tides would go, and felt that going to a certain visa would not be in their best interest, and that required me to look for employment, try to find another employer that would take our our work visa. It, it was quite, quite stressful. I found an organization that I'm currently with right now that supported that. I was going to was a, a very rural community, and it's a university town, so there's a component that is pretty liberal uh, and very left, and then, but it's surrounded by a large community of, of uh, very conservative, uh, very right-wing politics and culture. I was going to a, a hospital that was willing to support my immigration, but at the same time going to a place that could possibly be a hotbed of 
issues. This brings me to my story. I was in, I was staying late uh, one night a couple months ago. I just heard this uh, loud argument that um, was in, ensuing at the nursing station. And I only heard one voice. It was a male voice and it was very loud, a lot of cursing, a lot of swearing. So I walked over there and they were upset because um, they felt like they were being treated differently because they're from this uh, financially poor. Um, a marginalized group. Yeah, definitely. And I was asked to, to come talk to them. He went back into his room with his, his wife, who was the patient. And it turned out to be an issue about socks. <laughs> and I was like, what? What, why are we getting into this argument about socks? And they were asking for, for my final to the nurse, they were asking for extra meals. They were asking for vouchers for food for him um, because he didn't want to drive back and forth from their community to the hospital and because of their um, you know, financial constraints. And they've been there now for several days. I guess for the first day, the social worker was able to give them something. But as the her admission lasted longer, it, it started taking more of a financial toll on us. So they were told, nope, you're not getting any more. And then that night, I guess, our, our, our in, the, in our state, definitely cold and rainy, a gentleman came in with flip-flops and said, you know, can, can my husband have some, some of the socks as well? Because uh, we put our patients all in these nice, grippy little, you know, disposable socks. And I guess the staff said, that's it. <laughs> no more. The socks, the double meals, that was fine. The, the you know, extra pudding, all that kind of stuff was fine. You know, we're going to draw the line at socks. That, that was the um, boiling point for um, you're treating us differently. And we're, we're, you're just marginalizing us like you do all the time when we come here. So... I'm stepping into this environment. Security's hanging outside the door. The husband is like ready to fight whoever walks into that room. So I walk in there, spend some time with that family, hearing a little bit of, about their concerns, hearing more about what the past visit was as well. I'll take a pause here because one of the things about the staff too was that the previous manager, I guess, would, whenever there was a complaint, uh, from a patient, it was always the staff's fault, and they always felt that we cow to the to the patient and the family's whims all the time, and it makes them feel that we we enable the patient and the family to treat them uh, or verbally abuse them. So I was I was well aware of that as well. What I found was just hearing some of the concerns that they had. People treat us like we're trailer park trash, and I was able to um, kind of de-escalate them. One of the techniques I like doing is trying to get, just, just take people out and have a cup of coffee with them. And so I said, let's go for coffee. Let's get you out of this environment. Let the nurses come in and take, uh, take care of the patient. But I sat down with this gentleman, I guess in many ways are very stereotypes. You could say definitely um, um, trailer park was, you know, th that term that I, I saw when I spoke with him. And he was very upfront with me and said, you know, I'm a racist. So I was like, oh, okay, okay, let me, uh, do I really want to be alone with this gentleman for a little bit? 
he, he kind of talked about that this is the way that he's grown up and um, that he's from the small town and they haven't seen many people of color. And it was weird. There was that at some point in time during our conversations about our life, we, we were actually saying the same thing in the sense of, or I've been forgotten about by, by society, by uh, the world. I, and he says that, well, I do live in a double wide trailer and, and that he's kind of been stereotyped into this role. When we were talking, um, I talked a little bit about coming to the States. I've been waiting for years to try to get this visa. Uh, I'm also Filipino. In speaking about just being, you know, a minority in our own way, we were able to connect in that respect. <laughs> and then I just remembered okay, we're going to go back to the floor and I, I want to make sure that he behaves himself. I know that the staff are also kind of waiting for me to come back and see what happens. I think being a staff member before was to go, okay, what do I have to do? Are they, do they now have VIP status and they can treat us differently? And so we were having our coffee and I, I said to him, I said, when you go upstairs, you, you can't act the way that you do. And he owned that. And I said, I need you to go and apologize to the staff. We got back after having a cup of coffee. He, he went around and he apologized to the nurses, apologized to the, the charge. And it, it turned out to be very civil. He went back into his room. I, I didn't hear much about it. And the next day, you know, the nurses came to me and just said, you know, Thank you for making him apologize to us. We rarely get thank yous, but even rarer than that is an apology from a patient. And to have staff appreciate that, that I kind of held him accountable to his behavior was great. And then he showed up, I don't know, about mid midday that day, and he came up to me and he, he still had a voucher, a food voucher that social work had given him. And he said, I don't, I don't need this anymore. The previous night, I felt good, but that day was definitely coming home and feeling, yeah, I think I made a difference today. One of the things that I also got out of out of that was I, I did mention to you that he, he came out and says, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much, you would call me a racist. And by the time we had our conversation and kind of connected on, on, on different things, I was like, I hope he now has just a different opinion. You know, we do have a lot of doctors that are from other countries, and and I think there is this there there's like a selective racism. You know, I don't mind if my doctor is of this race or this color, but I don't know if I would go up, I, I don't know if I would go out with a beer with him, or is it a you know a level of tolerance, not necessarily of acceptance. And just having that cup of coffee with him, I just was hoping that he was going to be hopefully more comfortable with people with color, you know, kind of get beyond some of those, his, his prejudices that he has. So there was this level that I had as a nurse to nurse, but then it was, I was hoping that maybe we also kind of transcended more into a race relation as well. Well, I'm Gabby Rested. I work in CVICU in the Pacific Northwest. And my best story is, 2017 had me crying at the end. So spoiler alert, that's where we're going here. Um, I was taking care of um, a 60-year-old man, very well loved in his community. Um, His wife was by his bedside the whole time. His daughter had flown in from the East Coast 
And he was in really rough shape. He, he was on, I think, three different pressers in a really critical condition. And so that day I was taking care of him. I I'd met the family, this lovely family. They told me all about him, growing closer to the family. And and uh, throughout the shift, you know, I was taking care of this man and just wasn't really looking very good. So his daughter went and uh, I think she went for a walk at one point and she came back and she had a guitarist with her, a guitarist and a singer. So that was interesting to me. And so they had come in, I think, to visit their friend or family member in a totally different room. And the, the daughter had seen um, them playing for that patient and, and they had met in the waiting room and exchanged stories. And so here comes this guitarist. And it turns out that the daughter wanted to do this because it was the patient and wife's 40th wedding anniversary. So um, they set up to sing and they start strumming along and they start singing the Unchained Melodies. It's just such a beautiful song. And as they they start in going, I hunger for your touch. And I see the wife at the bedside holding the husband's hand and she starts crying and the daughter goes to the other side of the bed holding his hand and starts crying. And I'm at my computer screen searching Epic for a, like some sort of stability so I don't start crying. And the song plays on and all of a sudden the singer starts to cry and the guitarist starts to cry. And I'm still like opening my eyes as wide as I can so I'm not crying, being the nurse professional that I can be. And finally I just moved close to the bed and I got involved in that gorgeous beautiful moment where this was a precious life to everyone in the room including me and I started to cry I just allowed the tears to flow down my cheeks just like everybody else was in the room and I realized it was okay it was fine I was doing my job And my job at that moment in time was to be involved in this human's life. And so regardless of all the knowledge that we gain as nurses and everything that we can do to support our patients, I realized this year in 2017 that I could actually become involved in an emotional way with my patient. And that was something new for me. I grew up in the ER world, the trauma world, where you just did your job and you rolled on to the next patient. And this this story really helped me to recognize that I have more to give than just medical knowledge. I can actually have these moments with these patients that are so precious to their families. And everyone in the room recognized that this was an extremely precious moment, and I was so happy to be involved and to learn that this is part of nursing as well. And that's why it was my best story. My name is Joan, and I am a social worker in a large metropolitan hospital. Working in a hospital as a social worker 
is very challenging. We're expected to address problems that are very complicated, usually with very few resources. We're expected to fix problems. What we really do is help other people, help people fix their own problems. We don't fix their problems for them. We help them help themselves. That's sort of the goal of social work. But in the hospital, there's a, a lot of pressure on us to come, come up with plans for people so that they can be discharged. It can be pretty frustrating. Um, however, um, I worked with a patient this year where I had a, a different experience. I worked with a patient who ended up staying in the hospital for a lot longer than usual. She was a 23-year-old who had a history of complicated mental illness, suicidal attempts, suicidality, a lot of drug use. She was homeless, and she was at the hospital because she took a, combined a number of different drugs and was having a psychotic episode that was drug-induced. And she jumped from a, a very high place. She injured her spine, and she ended up, as a result, being a new paraplegic. She also was transgendered. She was male to female and identified as a female, so I call her her. She was struggling with being stigmatized a little bit, mostly because of her behaviors. She was not necessarily an easy person to be with or talk to, and she could sometimes be unpleasant. So this was causing her, she had a bit of a reputation. So because uh, she ended up staying in the hospital for as long as she did, I was able to work with her, see her almost every day. We were able to establish a relationship and um, develop certain level of trust. Once she was deemed medically ready for discharge, we started looking at some of the different options for her to leave the hospital. The recommendation was that she go to an um, inpatient physical rehabilitation program, but that program wouldn't accept her until she had a stable place to live, and since the patient was homeless, that couldn't happen. We made a lot of referrals to different rehabilitation centers, and she was consistently refused for either the drug problems, even though she had been clean since the accident, or her mental illness history, or the behaviors, or the suicidal nature of her accident. And finally, because she was transgendered, all of those things were making her difficult. Nobody wanted to take her. We were able to secure funding for her to be placed in a care home. And we were trying to find a care home that would accept her. But for all of the same reasons that rehabilitation centers didn't want her, it was the same challenges with care homes. Having the status of someone who's transgendered, who's identifying as an opposite gender from the way they present, uh, causes a lot of problems um, because of the fear that they would be sti further stigmatized in, in an environment where they would be mixing with just people who are not trained professionals, who are just average people. There's also um, complexities in their care for example, they would need a 
the the thought is that they would need a single room because even though she identified as female, they didn't think want her to share a room with another woman, and nor did they feel comfortable with her sharing a room with a man. And single rooms are hard to come by in rehab facilities. Um, but I do think that it's a result of um, underlying discomfort and unfamiliarity with what it means to be transgendered. We weren't able to find a good landing spot for this person. They obviously couldn't return to living on the streets. They really needed a significant amount of care. She was having a lot of trouble following treatment recommendations from doctors and therapists. She was struggling with the loss of control. Um, she suddenly had no control over her body and didn't have a very highly developed sense of what it, what her medical condition meant and what it would mean um, over the long term. And she wasn't really interested in receiving education around that. Um, in fact, when people tried to educate her, it would just make her angry. She really didn't need to be hospitalized anymore. The system really starts to not do well when someone is hospitalized but no longer really requiring hospital care. It starts to be a big problem. I We had tried everything that we could think of. So we had some funding for this person to go to a care home, but there was no care home available that was set up to take her to manage the high level of physical care she needed as well as manage her mental illness problems. Um, there was no rehabilitation center that would take her. We just kept referring and referring, but it was just a constant no. Finally, somebody had um, handed me a name and a phone number of someone they said they'd heard, knew about, or ran a care home that was for transgendered individuals. I was very skeptical, but I called the number because I thought if it was true, I would like to know about the existence of that. And when I reached the person, they um, told me no, that there was no such thing, and gave me a couple of other ideas of places where my patient might go. So I called a couple of those places, and neither of those places were adequate because um, the average age of the patients was 50s, 50 years old and up. And for other reasons, one of them you had to be referred by a different agency, not coming from a hospital. And but one of those people gave me another couple of names and phone numbers of people at the state um, that they said might be able to help. And this was at the state disability office. So I didn't call them right away because I just really was so doubtful that they would be helpful. Um, I thought that we'd done everything we needed to secure funding and I needed to sort of keep pursuing the the things that were offered. But after another several days went by, I decided just to call the state because I wasn't, nothing else was coming through and I thought it's, I can't hurt, I'll just call and then I'll check that off my list. And so I called and thinking I'm just gonna leave a message but actually someone answered the phone. And when I gave them a little summary of what I was asking for, they said, oh, I'll send out an email and see if I can find anything for you. And then I hung up thinking I'm never going to hear from them again. But a few days later, I got a phone call from someone who worked in the disability office at the state and said that she was particularly interested in helping my patient because of her transgen transgendered status. I was pretty excited about this. It was a very a hot lead, which I pursued. 
that person at the state had some ideas of care homes that would be interested in working with my patient because of her complexity and would be able to meet her needs efficiently. One of the people that she connected me with was a care home provider who came and interviewed the patient. When they met, they hit it off pretty quickly because the care home provider was able to allow the patient to be her authentic self and just said all of the right things. After the meeting went well, then we had to get some more funding confirmed by the state. And so I've been involved with a lot of complex discharge plans. And a lot of times what happens is I get things lined up and I think it's perfect and it's going to work and then something falls through. And, and so every time there has to be an, you know, a hurdle, it's very highly likely that the whole thing is going to fall apart. So I'm still working on things in the background, hoping that this will work. And a few days go by and I get a call and I hear the funding's approved. And a few more days go by and I get a call and it's approved that the patient can go to this care home. So because she finally had a place to live, we were able to send her to the inpatient rehab for physical therapy. After that, she went to the care home and she was their first resident. And so they sort of designed everything around her and let her help kind of identify the next people who were going to come in. It was a big success and very gratifying because when I first got involved with her, I really didn't think that's, I had only, I was pretty pessimistic. I really thought that the end outcome for her was going to be bad. Thought she would end up in a skilled nursing facility where she wouldn't really get the right level of care and she wouldn't be able to realize her physical potential and pursue some of the very realistic goals that she'd been sharing with me over the couple of months that I got to know her. She came by to see me. She was doing a follow-up at the hospital, and she came by to say hello and told me how wonderful things were going and that her everything was as she'd hoped, that she was getting the kind of structure and support that she'd always needed and had never received in her home environment growing up. She was not having any problems with drugs. She was not having any more uh, mental health crises. She had connected with a lot of agencies in the community and was receiving really good support for those two problems and told me and was thankful for everything that I had done for her. She said, everything that you did and all of the problems that you and the, the trouble that you went to was worth it. I was very, very gratified. A few days later, I spoke with the person at the county funding agency who had worked with her and told that person that she was doing very well and that I'd seen her and I wanted to share that information and what a great success it was. And that person responded to me that unfortunately, because she had improved so much physically, that likely they were going to take away her funding and she wouldn't be able to stay in that care home anymore. So it's always a bittersweet ending. I d I'm not sure if she's going to have Lo really lose funding or not. I'm hopeful that somehow something will happen. She seemed to have kind of a lot of good, um, positive things going her way. So I'm hoping that things work, continue to work out for her. But 
it's the reality of our system. Um, when someone does too well, then we take away supports instead of continuing to support them to be successful. My thoughts at the end of that are, and regardless of whether she gets funding or not to continue living in this, being the pioneer of this new care home that she's been in, that over the months of her rehab, she's probably developed, it sounds like, I hope anyway, that she has developed skills to survive and to get better. And to me, that would be worth it. Just the time that she, whatever, regardless of whether the funding takes her, you know, in the future there or not, that the time that she has spent there and the therapy she has gotten, that she has developed skills and ways to, to be a survivor. And I, and I certainly hope she does. What is the thing from this story that you will take with you? I guess what I learned from uh, working on this particular case was um, never stop asking and to also kind of leave no stone unturned. Making that call to the state, I really thought was just a waste of my time. And the fact that it had such a good outcome really encourages me to just continue to ask. And people can say no a hundred times. And that one time they say yes is going to be the time when you really needed it to come through. So, yeah, just it was a really good example of how sometimes um, with the right kind of prodding, the system actually comes through and helps people the way they need to be helped. And there you have it. Best Stories 2017. Thank you so much for listening to the All the Feels version. Thank you so much to my amazing guests, Nurse slash Jedi Dustin, Dr. Jesse Robertson, Christy Turner, Ashley Blackman, Jay, Joan, and Gabby. You guys are wonderful human beings and providers. Thank you for your inspiration. Also, don't forget to check out the other Best Stories episode, Making a Difference. There, I talked to seven healthcare professionals making headway in all corners of the medical universe, from knowledge sharing to policymaking to building hospitals and charity work and just generally being badasses at life. Really motivating tales, so go check it out. Best Stories, Making a Difference. 2018 will bring some very cool things for head to toe. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Podbean or iTunes and leave me a rating or comment if you have time. Please go to Facebook and like my Marie McMillan page and you'll be up to date on all the new podcast developments. Please share the links to the show with all your friends and colleagues on social media as I'm always looking to grow the listener base. So I thank you for your help with that. I wanted to add if you are listening and wanted to be part of Best Stories and we weren't able to figure out a time to schedule an interview for whatever reason, fear not. There will be more opportunities to be heard. In 2018, I'm planning on recording conversations in three different categories, extraordinary stories, much like this episode, career profiles, and trending topics. Visit my website, mariemacmillan.com for more info on that. And there you can get yourself on my newsletter list and be among the first to know when a show goes live or there's a call for show guests and so forth. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. So feel free to comment on social media, shoot me an email at macmillanpages at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail on the podcast feedback line, 503-512-0185. Finally, the music from today's show came from an artist known as Rhombus Rare, aka Rom. His debut album can be found on YouTube with a sophomore album coming out in 2018. Check the link in the show notes. Thanks for the beats, dude. 2017, it's been real. I'm ready to pop the champagne. I toast to you, listeners, and all the providers working tonight and over the holidays. Thank you for being at the hospitals and clinics to take care of all the sick and injured people. Everyone, have a great night. Be safe. Stay tuned for more Head to Toe in 2018. And take care.